just want to underline um, how much that book notes from the Tilter world, how much fun it is. It's, it's a very profound theological book in a way, but it also makes you laugh out loud. He's a very creative writer. I remember when I was reading it, Johnny put me onto it, of course. Um, I'd stand on the train station at the end of the day of work, longing for the train to come because it would mean that I got a chance to keep reading this book. It was, became almost like a detective novel that I couldn't put down. And if you're a preacher, um, you'll find it's the kind of book that gives you imagery and phrases and sort of uh, ways of looking at things that are very entertaining and refreshing and, and helpful to you. So I certainly recommend that one. Well, let's pray. Lord, how good it is that you speak to us, that you don't just leave us scrambling around trying to invent wisdom for ourselves, but that you've revealed it to us in your word, in the book of Ecclesiastes, and in the person of the Lord Jesus. Please engage with us now through these words, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it was before World War One. And it was out in the west of New South Wales, where I'm from. And even though it was the 20th century, the way my grandfather was living out there, well, it could have been many hundreds of years earlier. My grandfather as a young boy and his family were kind of like pioneers in what we call the central west of New South Wales. And he wrote some memoirs before he died a few years ago, and he wrote this. The conditions were different in those days. There were no trains. The railway line hadn't been constructed yet. There was no electricity. We used kerosene lamps. There were no washing machines or refrigerators, wireless, television or cars. We used bag sides attached to a tray of water which soaked down the hessian to keep the meat and butter cool. Bread was delivered by coach once a week, but my mother used to bake most of our bread and meat was available from the station properties if you bought the sheep and killed it yourself. I remember one day there was no meat for Dad's dinner and Mum was sick in bed, so I decided to catch some birds. I did this by propping up a box with a stick, putting some wheat under the box, and getting back to wait for the birds to come under the box before pulling the stick away. The result? Two birds which Grandad killed as a young boy, cleaned and plucked for dinner. He wrote, unfortunately, they did not turn out too good. They were as tough as leather, but we were pleased to eat them. Now, when I read that in Grandad's memoirs, I was really disturbed. I thought, oh, you poor little boy. Imagine that. He's out there in the middle of nowhere with sick mum and I don't know where his dad was, and there he is trying to catch two little birds for their dinner. And I was really struck by how that story is full of experiences so vastly different from my own. And I think what struck me is it's kind of like a story that belongs to a time when there had been no industrial revolution and no information revolution. It it just sort of takes us back hundreds of years. But it does probably reflect how human beings have lived for centuries. But I'm a child of the industrial revolution and so I want to know Where's the frozen casserole in the freezer that was put away for the time when mum was sick? And, and why isn't there a big abattoir somewhere to kill the lamb? You see, we expect life to be surrounded by large-scale enterprises that manufacture white goods and process meat for us. And because these systems work so well for us much of the time, we can kind of think that we've mastered the universe. 
I never have to go without meat or even have to think where it comes from when it's laid out in plastic bags in big metal fridges in the supermarkets. And I guess this has even been heightened for us more by the information revolution. Not only can we industrialise and control the world, we can communicate slabs of information so easily within it. And so we begin to expect, I think, that we should understand this world. If mum's sick in bed well, and there's no meat, well, surely there's a mobile phone number we can ring and surely there's a website we can visit and we can get a pizza delivered by the internet and we can call on the mobile phone to a doctor and we can get a diagnosis and, and we can sort of get on top of this situation, can't we? But I guess we've been seeing this weekend that the book of Ecclesiastes loves to raise the difficult truth that much of the time we can't control the world and much of the time we don't understand the world. Now, you might expect then that its final conclusion will be to just stay in bed, really, just lie down and maybe just meditate or opt out. And because of the accents I've chosen to give the opening few talks this weekend, you might be thinking that really the advice of the book is simply just to sit around and eat and drink and to not really do anything, just have fun. But if that was all I were to say from the book of Ecclesiastes, it wouldn't actually be true to the book as a whole. And here in chapter 11, there's actually some other advice for us. And I find chapter 11, these first six verses, really intriguing. Because what the writer starts to do is put ideas side by side that don't seem to quite logically belong together. But when you actually work a bit harder on on the, the little elements of it, you begin to see what he's, what he's driving at. And I think the message of chapter 11 verses 1 to 6 is that we should engage, a bit like granddad getting on with his bird hunting. So we're focusing on these first six verses and hopefully you've, well I'm guessing that you found it a little bit hard to make sense of as we went through it. And that's some, because sometimes Old Testament writers put the order of their material in a way that isn't quite linear. They don't just sort of start at the beginning of their ideas and end up at the end in the way that we might. They sometimes write as though they're making a sandwich. So they might have two slices of bread that match up and then they might put something in the middle of them and maybe something in the middle of that as well. So I've got some charts that will hopefully make sense of it. I think verses 1 and 2 open up the passage for us and they're like the first slice of bread in a sandwich, I've chosen brown bread, and they're quite similar to verse 6, which is the second slice of bread. Then verses 3 and 5 are like two slices of lettuce, say, containing similar observations of the world. And that then leaves verse 4 as the centre, say like a slice of tomato. And you might notice that there's some really clever word choice going on. Verse 4, which I think is the centre, has got the word wind in it, whoever watches the wind. And then you jump to verse 5 and he says, you do not know the path of the wind. And then you go back to verse 4 and it says, whoever looks at the clouds. But then you see the beginning of verse 3 was, if clouds. So in in verse 4 he's got wind and clouds, but he's already had clouds and he's going to go back to wind. And then if you look on at the pieces of bread, um, verses 1 and 2 and verse 6, they've both got the expression in it, for you do not know. 
there's some real similarities there. So when you stop and think about it, I think what's going on is that the bits of bread on the outside are commands for us. And they've got that expression, as I said, for you do not know. Now, because they're the commands, I've thought, why don't I end with those tonight? Because it's good to end a sermon with a strong sense of let's get out there and do something. So I'm going to hold back the bread. Um, But what about the lettuce leaves, verses 3 and 5? Well, I think they're statements. They're statements about rain clouds and trees falling in forests and movements of wind and the formation of a baby. They're actually all statements about things that show our, the limits of our capacity to understand and control things. And verse 4 in the middle seems to be a warning, I think. I think that's the structure of it. So um, this is how I'm going to preach for the rest of tonight. I want to start with the lettuce, and then I want to go to the tomato, and then I want to go to the slices of bread to end. And hopefully this is the first sermon in your life, the structure of which was the lettuce and then the tomato, and then the bread. (laughs) But I hope that's not too confusing for you. So let's have a look at the lettuce together and see what's going on here. Have a look at verse 3. If clouds are full of water, they pour rain upon the earth. Whether a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where it falls, there will it lie. Hmm, okay, that's good. What do I do with it? Um... I think in an enigmatic sort of puzzling wisdom literature way, the writer's trying to get us to see how little we understand of the world. If clouds are full of water, yes, they do pour rain upon the earth. Yes, I know that. But how do I know when the clouds are full? And how can I be sure if they will pour rain? And how do I know where they'll have floated to by the time they're full and they're ready to pour forth their rain? In a similar way, whether a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where it falls, there will it lie. Yeah, I I get that. Trees are pretty big and heavy. And once they go plop, that's pretty much where they stay. Yes, I get that. But can you see the puzzle of it? How do you know which tree in the forest is going to be the one that falls? And how do you ever predict completely with confidence that it's going to fall to the south or it's going to fall to the north? Now, I think verse 5 actually makes the riddling nature of this a bit clearer to us. Verse 5 says, As you do not know the path of the wind, or how the body is formed in a mother's womb, so you cannot understand the work of God, the maker of all things. Yes, you do not know the path of the wind. Indeed, the wind is invisible, unpredictable. Who knows where that next gust of wind will come from and and when it will blow? We often just don't know. And as for how a baby is formed in a mother's womb, well, yes, we've now got the language of cell replication and specialisation, but how does each cell know exactly what to do? And can we ever be completely sure that a baby will have mum's hair colour or dad's dimple? I think this kind of mosaic here of rain clouds and falling trees and gusts of air and mysterious embryos, they're all pointing us to a God who is bigger than us. Not always easy to work out, not always easy to predict. They all point us to a God governing a world that is bigger than us. Not always easy to work out, not always easy to predict. And this is a strong theme in the book of Ecclesiastes. I I guess you're seeing it by now. 
chapter 8, verse 7 says, Since no man knows the future, who can tell him what is to come? Or chapter 8, 16 says, When I applied my mind to know wisdom and to observe man's labour on the earth, his eyes not sleeping day or night, then I saw all that God has done. No one can comprehend what goes on under the sun. Despite all his efforts to search it out, man cannot discover its meaning. Even if a wise man claims he knows, he cannot really comprehend it. Now this is actually a tough truth for us, I think. We're children of the information revolution. We can always Google when we're in doubt. And even in the castle, there are places you can stand where you can still (laughs) Google and find out. And so maybe some of us in our generation want to laugh at the naivety of this ancient text. What are, you, what are you saying here that we do not know how a baby is formed in a mother's womb? We can now document the order of three billion bases of, human, of a human DNA sequence and we could actually store that sequence on a single CD and we could hold up that CD and say, look, I know how a baby is formed. We might laugh at the naive idea here that we can't predict when the rain's going to fall or where the wind's going to blow. We can always visit websites and we can see where the wind's coming and where the rain's going and so on. But do we really understand all those things as deeply and as profoundly as we think? I know as a lecturer it's taken me some years to actually feel comfortable with admitting that I don't know. I remember my early years of lecturing how much I hated that hand going up with a question because I'd be thinking, you're going to ask me something I don't know. And I'm, go- <laughs> and I'm going to be revealed as a fool in front of this whole class. But now when the hand goes up and it's a question I don't know, I think, well, there you go. There's, there's another thing I don't know. And I wonder if as a class we can solve this or something. Or maybe we can't. Maybe, no, maybe nobody knows the answer to that. It's sort of been a journey for me. Mind you, this is frightening the life out of me. <laughs> But the book of Ecclesiastes, I think, is saying to me as a, as a lecturer, you don't need that hot rush of anxiety every time someone asks a question because a lot of the time as human beings, we just don't know. It's actually okay to not be completely up to date, not across all the facts, because no matter how many gigabytes of guff you can store in your pocket, there's still a lot of mystery out there in the world. So I think that's what the point of these lettuce leaves in the sandwich is, just to humble us and to make us realise how hard it is to understand the world. And perhaps even more than that, how hard it is to control the world. I mean, you might understand what makes rain, but can you make it rain? You might understand the physics of why trees fall to the north or the south, but can you actually cause that tree to fall at at your will? Do you tell the wind where to blow? Have you ever built a fetus? I've sat and watched our one-hour-old daughter die in Lisa's arms. And I can tell you, I don't know how to make a fetus. Can you tell God what to do? Hey, it sounds like I'm reading from the book of Job now, doesn't it? Job and Ecclesiastes, all the wisdom literature that puts us in our place. 
I think the writer of Ecclesiastes is creating space here for us to stop bluffing that we are masters of our destiny and to start trusting God. But like all good pieces of Christian teaching, we can distort them. And I think sometimes the notion that we don't understand and that we don't control things becomes a distorted idea in our head that means we think, well, what's the point? Have you had that feeling at all this weekend reading Ecclesiastes that what's the point of even trying to do anything because it's kind of meaningless or futile, it's not going to gain anything? Maybe you've been starting to feel some horrible cords of resignation wrap around you so that you feel kind of crippled and you don't want to act. Well, I think that's why there's a tomato in the middle of this sandwich. Because the writer is aware, hey, by this point in the book, you might be starting to feel a bit resigned and a bit despondent. And so he says to you in verse 4, Whoever watches the wind will not plant. Whoever looks at the clouds will not reap. And I think this verse is a warning to us in those times when we want to give up. It's saying to us, don't be idle. Don't you be one of those people who doesn't plant and who doesn't reap. Now this teaching's actually been dotted through the book all along. Ecclesiastes 4.5 says, The fool folds his hands and ruins himself. That's chapter 4 verse 5. And chapter 10 verse 18 says, If a man is lazy, the rafters sag. If his hands are idle, the house leaks. The warning against laziness here in 11.4 is a bit more subtle. Whoever watches the wind will not plant. Whoever looks at the clouds will not reap. I think he's pointing out that there are some people who can always come up with a good reason why it's not quite the right time to start work. I'm really good at that when it's time to mow the lawn. I can say, well... It's such a sunny day, I could get out there and mow the lawn. But on such a sunny day, it's also a really good chance to dry the washing. And if I were to mow the lawn, well, I'd stir up the dust and I'd ruin the washing. So why don't we just peg out the washing today and I'll mow the grass tomorrow. And then hopefully it'll rain tomorrow and I won't have to mow the grass. I've got a whole lot of systems in my head as to why the weather tells me today I shouldn't have to mow the grass. Are you a bit like that? You can always watch the wind or look at the clouds and just stay inside and watch TV. And the writer is saying, hmm, you actually don't really want to be one of those people who never plants and who never reaps, who always procrastinates. You can see there's something quite serious here, isn't there, that some people are actually so busy waiting for the perfect time that they never get on with what they actually should be doing with their life. They're waiting for the perfect set of conditions and it's like they're too anxious or too worried about results to even get off their backside and do anything. Perhaps there can be a real psychological issue here for some of us about not taking responsibility for our own lives. In his best-selling book, The Road Less Travelled, M. Scott Peck tells this story. He was working as a psychiatrist at the time in an American military base on an island south of Japan. A young wife of a serviceman cut her wrist lightly with a razor blade and was brought into the emergency room where I saw her. I asked her why she had done this to herself. To kill myself, of course. Why do you want to kill yourself? Because I can't stand it on this dumb island. You have to send me back to the United States. 
I'm going to kill myself if I have to live here any longer. What is it about living here that is so painful? She began to cry in a whining sort of way. I don't have any friends here and I'm all alone all the time. Oh, that's too bad. How come you haven't made any friends? Because I have to live in a stupid Okinawan housing area and none of my neighbours can speak English. Oh, why don't you drive over to the American housing area or to the wives club during the day so you can make some friends? Because my husband has to drive the car to work. But... Couldn't you drive him to work, since you're alone and bored all day? Peck asked her. No, it's a manual car, and I don't know how to drive a manual car, only an automatic. Well, why don't you learn how to drive a manual car? The woman who had tried to commit suicide glared at the doctor and said, Learn to drive on these roads? You must be crazy. Reminds me of the kind of person that Proverbs Proverbs 22.13 The sluggard says, There is a lion outside, or I will be murdered in the streets. For a lot of reasons to do with upbringing and personality, we can look outside of ourselves for the right situation for when it's time to act. But wisdom literature is strong on responsibility. If you're a procrastinator, then I want to challenge you tonight to explore what it is that makes you procrastinate. Why does everything have to be just right before you act? What's going on for you there? What are you hiding from or what are you afraid of? Why don't you have the confidence to just act? Well, where are we up to here? We're out of control, that's what the letters told us. We're finite creatures with limited knowledge. And so do we give up and do nothing? No, says the tomato. You actually should get out there and do something and you should stop procrastinating. Well, what should you do? Well, the bread is going to tell us. Let's have a look at verse 1. Cast your bread upon the waters, or... we've. It's sometimes translated slightly differently. What, did, what was your reading of that? Ship your, grain. ship your grain. Ship your grain upon the waters. So cast your bread or ship your grain upon the waters, for after many days you will find it again. Now, um, the commentaries actually have a lot to say about what does it mean to ship your grain or cast your bread. <coughs> Is he suggesting we get involved in shipping and exporting, feeding ducks in the park? What is it that we should be doing with our lives? Well, other ancient sayings suggest that the writer is using a figure of speech here to encourage acts of charity and generosity. There's an Egyptian saying that goes like this, do a good deed and throw it in the water. When it dries, you will find it. And there's an Arabic proverb which goes like this, do good, throw your bread on the waters and one day you will find it. So that Egyptian and Arabic sort of background might make us think, well, to cast your bread or to ship your bread on the waters is a way of saying, do good in the world. Send out goodness and generosity. And the writer seems to be saying that much of the time, good things will come back to you as a result of doing that. For after many days, 
you will find it again. In a novel about a woman working with peasants in Nicaragua, she reflects, wars and elections are both too big and too small to matter in the long run. But the daily work that goes on, that adds up. It goes into the ground, into crops, into children's bellies and into their bright eyes. Good things don't get lost. Good things don't get lost. So do the good thing, even when you lack full understanding and full control. And verse 2 continues on with this theme of generosity, I think. Give portions to seven, yes to eight, for you do not know what disaster may come upon the land. This is a proverb that's a strange twist on do not put all your eggs in the one basket. We have that in our culture, don't we? Do you have that in Northern Ireland? Don't put all your eggs in the one basket. Don't save, don't, you know, don't rely on just one thing for the things that are precious to you. But this is kind of saying, don't give away all your eggs to the one basket. Give them the way to seven and to eight. It's a much more outward-looking proverb. So when you're giving things away, try to diversify. Try to find new people and new ways of being generous. And the amazing thing is the reason that he gives for us. For you do not know what disaster may come upon the land. Now I'm sure my mum and dad would have taught me, because you do not know what disaster may come upon the land, you hang on to your bread. You hang on to your eggs. You take care of yourself. Don't, be, don't go giving things away. You better have something to look after yourself. Because who knows what disaster may come. But what does the Bible say? Hey, you don't know whether you're going to get run over by a car tomorrow. So why don't you give some money away today? That's a good idea. Don't just put it in the bank. Give it away. Isn't that amazing? That lack of knowledge about the future, which should make generosity seem imprudent, is actually the reason in the Bible why we should be generous. So maybe in times of economic hardship, you splash money around a bit. Maybe when things looking like they're going to get a bit tough for you, you act generously towards someone else. Now, generosity is quite a difficult topic to bring up when many of us feel so pressed for time and where many of us feel so pressed economically. But the voice of the Bible is clear here, isn't it? That it, the, the people who have put their trust in God have got the resources to be generous people. And one thing I've picked up in my reading about time and busyness and work and leisure is that leisure only really happens when we feel free to make choices. Leisure is not only about having spare time as such, but it's about having time where you feel like you've made a choice. And if you make a decision to live generously, then actually every day for you is a leisurely day because out of your freedom you choose to move towards others. And the psychologist will tell us that that is actually a very refreshing and liberating stance. If I say, yes, I can see you today. If I say, yes, I will visit you in hospital. If I say, yes, I am going to listen when you talk to me. I'm making choices about my time and showing that I do have some control over what I do with my time. And the psychologist will say that will actually make me feel a bit more relaxed. Generosity is a great thing, isn't it? 
it takes you beyond yourself. It brings out the best in you. It opens your eyes to the reality of other people's existence. It lets you make connections with unexpected people. Generosity subverts greed. It puts an end to fear and insecurity and makes us realize that we are not victim that we are not victims we are not powerless and generosity in the end is an act of faith in god it's a way of saying god will look after me well here are some ways of being generous and see if you can think of these as sharing the gifts that god has given to you you can be generous simply by allowing yourself to be fully present in a conversation. You can be generous by accepting people for who they are. You can be generous by giving more of your time, interest and concern than is necessary. You can be generous in a conversation by choosing to talk about what's positive and stimulating and uplifting. You can give someone the benefit of the doubt. You can decide not to blame someone for your mistakes. You can pay attention to the person who seems to be being left out. You can deliberately praise. You can deliberately encourage. You can deliberately rejoice. What's fascinating is that Ecclesiastes tells us to cast our bread and to give our portions. Now those two words, bread and portion, have been words elsewhere in the book of Ecclesiastes that describe what God gives to us. That's an amazing dynamic, isn't it? What God gives to us becomes the things that we're free to give to other people. So ask yourself, what kind of things would I love to receive from God? And make the decision, even tonight, to start giving those things out to other people. For some of you, a decision to be generous will mean adding things to your diary because you've got a tendency to be mean with your time and to keep it to yourself. For others of you, being generous is going to mean taking things out of your diary because you're so darn busy that you're never truly present with anyone. You're just rushing. So if you're someone who's always rushing and exhausted, I want you tonight to think, what am I going to cross out of my diary so that in the things that I do do, I can do them with a generous spirit? And what about that second slice of bread in verse 6? Let's have a look at it. Sow your seed in the morning, and at evening let not your hands be idle. For you do not know which will succeed, whether this or that, or whether both will do equally well. The big message is engagement. Notice how it's engagement with complete awareness of our lack of control. I love that. I think I've been brought up to sort of have a go at things when you know you're going to do okay in them. And the, but Ecclesiastes says, just have a go at things. Because you don't know how it's going to work out. So get, it, get out there and have a go. And the image of sowing seeds is obviously taken from farming, sow your seed in the morning, let not your hands be idle. But sowing seeds is a lovely open-ended image in the Bible, isn't it? It's a way of capturing all the ways that we exercise effort for the sake of the future. 
And don't you feel that we're very close to the parables of Jesus here? Don't you feel that Jesus' parables are, are really about sowing your seed in the morning and, and at evening letting not your hands be idle as you, you light, you're a light on a hill and you don't put yourself under a bushel or you see that the, ski, the seeds are scattered all over the place or that you don't hide away your talents but you invest them and you actually do something with them so that they grow. The writer of Ecclesiastes is encouraging us to be enterprising and to not hide ourselves away. I can remember one Sunday afternoon, Lisa and I were sitting in a lounge room in the western suburbs of Sydney. We were students at a church there and being students, our lives felt a little bit out of our control. Everyone else was always telling us what to do and when things were due and what we should be trying to be. And we were thinking, well, we're only going to be in this church for a year or two. What's the point of trying to get to know people all that well? And so we were trying to raise with the minister there, do you think there's a chance for a job here in the future? You see, if you could offer us something a bit more permanent, then it would give us a reason to make friends and to put time into the relationships here. But our supervising minister answered in a way that suggested that he was a lot more comfortable than I was to be out of control and to lack knowledge. He said, I don't know if I can offer you a job here next year. I don't know what's going to happen next year. Maybe the church won't even be here in a year or two if it's achieved what God wanted it to achieve. And indeed, that church isn't there anymore. We, didn't need, we don't need certain plans and all the details clear, he said. And he said to us, all I know is that right now you are part of this church. Right now you are in this community with real people, with real lives and stories to tell, who need truth and love and friendship and care. So are you going to get on and do that or aren't you? My first three talks in this series were mainly for people who try to do too much but some of us try to do too little. We're frightened because of all the things that we can't control and we're frightened because of all the things that we don't know. Well the book of Ecclesiastes looks you straight in the eye and says I'm as frightened as you at all that we can't control and all that we don't know. But still I say this, cast your bread. Give away your portions. Sow your seed. Don't be idle. It's time. So is that you? You're so frightened by all you can't control and all that you don't know that you just never volunteer for anything at church because it might go wrong or you won't know how to do it or someone will see how bad you are and I won't even put my hand up and I won't even try. You're so frightened by all that you can't control and all that you don't know that you still haven't applied for that job. You're so frightened that you're just retreating from your wife now because it's all just seeming too hard. You're retreating too from your brother and your sister even though you see that they're having a bad time but you don't quite get it and you're scared that you're going to get hurt so it's better just to stop rigging them and to kind of ignore them. 
And as for that lonely neighbour who you know lives in your street, well, you're just hoping that somebody else will take care of them. But it's time, isn't it? It's time to trust God with the results, even though you can't control them. It's time to get up and take some risks, cast your bread, give your portions, sow your seeds, and in doing all of that, to entrust yourself to our wise, generous creator. We're going to pause for a time of reflection. So let's do that now.